Are you ready to listen now? Not to me, but to God's Word. And I tried as much as I could, as your human shepherd, to keep your mind in a focus on God. Amen? And I hope I gave you a small picture of whatever happens, pray to God. Trust in Him. So here we go again, the God who remembers. There is good lateness in life and bad lateness in life. And what on earth is good lateness? So I was talking about a marathon. Marathon is 42 kilometers. How many of you have run a marathon? Hands up. How many of you are dreaming of running a marathon, but will never run a marathon? Right. So 42 kilometers, fastest time to run a kilometer, uh, to, to run a marathon, is helped by Kipchoge, the best runner in human history. Two hours and eight minutes to run 42 kilometers. Many of us can't do that. That's but who took the slowest time to run a marathon? And so uh, I love sports. And I remember watching years ago, in which during the Olympics, right, they were running, and one of the runners fell. And this happens at every Olympic. They fell, they fall, they have an injury, it's raining, and then, but they still persevere. And they run. The race started in the morning, and you see them running in by nightfall. And the spectators are still there in the stadium waiting. And when the runner, the final runner makes it, despite the injury, limping in, walking in, limping in, walking in, the whole stadium erupts in huge applause and encouragement. I call that good lateness. There is virtue in being late because it displays perseverance, the tenacity of the human heart. The slowest time to run a marathon is helped by this man. I just Google it. It's helped by Shizo Kanakuri. On 14 July 1912, he took part in a marathon at the Stockholm Olympics. And then he collapsed halfway through. In embarrassment, he never finished. He returned home and then went missing. He was finally tracked down by the Swedish officials in 1967, by which time he was 75 years old. And then they invited him to compete, to complete the marathon race. So the slowest time to complete the marathon took 54 years and 249 days. The goodness of lateness, when it shows the human spirit, and we applaud that. What was supposed to take 11 days to enter the promised land took 40 years for Israel under God. There will be no applause from God for the late arrival into the promised land. That is bad lateness. And bad lateness comes when we disobey God in our lives. And how on earth does that disobedience begin? We're going to read about it again and again. Firstly, because this is the first sermon of the series, an outline of the book is a series of three major sermons, the farewell sermons of Moses before he passes to glory and then it's passed on. First sermon, when God remembers 
Second sermon, the general commands, the law, is given from chapter 4 to chapter 11. The third sermon, the law, the Ten Commandments, is broken down into very specific instructions for all areas of life, as it were. And the choice before Israel is, if you choose to obey, you'll be blessed. If you choose to disobey, you'll be cursed. And the first generation never entered, now the second generation, you have to choose not to repeat that disobedience. And it finishes with Moses' last will and words. And it passes on God and faith in the true and living God to Joshua and a new generation of Israelites. If that is the outline of the book, a valid outline of the book, then here's the outline of chapter 1. It begins when God repeats their history, rehearses their history. So I just want to pick up on the word history. How many of us like history? Notice I didn't use the word love history. Like, if you like history, a little bit of liking, hands up. This is an unusual congregation, no? But maybe that what happened with Roland has awakened you. Very few of us treasure history. If you are a believer, you are a Christian, you've got to pray to love history, not like it. Because you're going to find God replaying history for us again and again. And that's a very important thing. I believe with all my heart that Christians are individually weak and the church is collectively weak because we have such hatred for history, such forgetfulness of history, of how God worked in the past and how God work, works in the present. And so God remembers God's blessing of descendants, God's blessing of lands. And then, as God rehearses this history, He tells them, you forgot. I remember you forget. We are in a covenant relationship. We are in a loving relationship. What if both of us forget? God never forgets. And that's the only reason Israel survives. So, when God remembers, these are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel. Beyond the Jordan and the wilderness, in the Arabah opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth and Dizahab, it's 11 days' journey from Horeb, by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. The words I want you, every word is important. The 11 days is important and Kadesh Barnea, please sear this into your mind as, some, as a place, a geographic place, you must know if you think yourself a believer in God. Kadesh Barnea. You want to try pronouncing that? Kadesh Barnea. Kadesh Barnea. Kadesh Barnea. Teach that to your children. God will never let Israel forget Kadesh Barnea. Why? One began as 11 days a journey in the 40th year on the first day of the 11th month. So if you had a dating, right? 0, 1, right? 11, 40. That's the date. Moses spoke to all the people of Israel to all that the Lord had given him in commandment to them. After he had defeated Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived in Hezbon, Og, the king of Bashan, not Bishan, who lived in Estoroth and in Edrai. And so, are you lost for places? Sorry, this map is slightly small, but it's important. So, always remember 1140. What could have taken 11 days has now taken 40 years 
and wipe up a whole generation. So I'm going to try and pinpoint this with this laser. Can you see the laser? Can you see my laser? They come out of Egypt after years, centuries of slavery. God leads them out, parts the Red Sea. They walk down, right, crossing the Red Sea here. At Marah, they sin against God soon after God has delivered them, accusing God, accusing God of bad plans for them. God perseveres with them. He leads them to Mount Sinai, also called Horeb. Right? So in Deuteronomy, Mount Sinai is Horeb. And Mount Sinai is most important because God gave them the law at Mount Sinai. They now move up. The promised land is here, Canaan, in the cream, slightly pinkish color on the top right-hand corner. So they journey up Asiam Geba. And look here, Mount Seir Road, 11 days. 11 days from here to from here, right, into the promised land. But because they disobeyed at Kadesh Baner, look at the lakes here, 38 years of going round in circles. That's the geography. Are you there with me? So, this is the promised land. It's occupied by the Amorites. There's the sea of uh, the Salt Sea, the Dead Sea, and it goes all the way up. This becomes southern nation, Judah. This becomes northern nation, Israel. Jerusalem is in the southern nation when they settle in years later. So when you read the Bible, everything is recorded as fact for us. And so, what does God say? See, I've set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give, them, to give to them and to their offspring. The whole preoccupation of Deuteronomy is the land, the land, the land. And so, why is this important? The backstory, the starting point, a Bible verse you are never to forget if you call yourself a believer and a follower of Jesus, it always begins with God's promise to Abraham. So you never forget God's promise to Abraham. Can we read this together? And the Lord said to Abraham, Go. Why is this the turning point verse, verses of the Bible? Because from Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, God's blessing in Genesis 1 and 2, His original purpose was to bless mankind. I will be their God, they will be my people. I will bless you. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. From Genesis 3 to Genesis 11, the word is curse. By the sweat of your brow, you eat from the land. Curses, decay, disease, and finally death. In three verses, you find the word blessing used five times. Which means if you take out God's promise to Abraham, the whole Bible collapses and you can't draw a storyline. The storyline is from Jesus all the way back to Abraham. And so you now hear the story. God has fulfilled His first promise to make them a great nation. He made them a great nation from 
an old couple who had no children. Sarah's womb was dead. And from that dead womb, God brought a nation so numerous that a new Pharaoh wanted to wipe out, wipe them out. But God preserved them and brought them out. And so that's important. He's fulfilled the first promise of many descendants for Abraham. Now he's going to fulfill the land. And why is that important? It's about the kingdom of God. God's people, that's been fulfilled. Going to God's land to worship God. The trifactor. God's people worship. God's people going to God's land to worship God as king. The kingdom of God. And so you'll find this, that Israel was to experience a small picture of this, but a real experience of God with God ruling them. So the lessons of remembering and forgetting are huge. God remembers His promise to fulfill His purpose to save His people. He doesn't remember suka suka as in the Malay word. He remembers for salvation. He remembers to bless us. We forget God when we try to save ourselves. And you and me will try to save ourselves as Israel did when you take things into your own hands. And all along the journey, Israel took things into her own hands. So you and I need to choose to remember that God remembers to save us and to bless us. And when we forget, it's when we take things into our own hands. At that time, I said to you, I'm not able to bear you by myself. And so now there are many descendants. And so from this portion onwards, what are we going to see? How does Moses rule the descendants? Recorded for us in actually Exodus. And what kind of descendants? At that time, I said to you, I'm not able to bear you by myself. The Lord has multiplied you and behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. When God said to old Abraham and Sarah with a dead womb, barren womb, your descendants will be as many as the stars in the sky and sand on the seashore. She laughed. She couldn't believe it. Here it is, the fulfillment of it. And look at verse 11 carefully. May the Lord our God, the God of our fathers, make you a thousand times as many as you are and bless you as he promised. Promise, blessing. Promise, blessing. Promise, blessing. Is that too difficult to understand of God? Not too difficult. What kind of descendants? How can I bear you, bear by myself, the weight and burden of you and your strife? Here is Moses speaking of what it means for him to be the shepherd, the human shepherd, the pastor of the Israelites who have been redeemed from Israel, who have seen the miraculous power of God. So, Choose from your tribes, wise and understanding, experienced men. I'll point them as heads, and you answered men. The thing they have spoken is good for us to do. Very seldom does Israel say that to Moses. Very seldom do they say to a human leader under God as true leader, what you suggested is good. What does that tell you? The background to this is Exodus 18. When Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, comes along and says to him, you can't, you can't single-handedly, right, Run this nation. You just can't. And so the lesson there is safe people are not safe people. Right? 
We are not safe in terms of being loving and caring and nice to each other. Safe people are still sinful people made holy progressively by God as God gives them the law and the sacrificial system. Full of burdens, the word for burdens, is almost interchangeable and equal to problems. And so from then to now, it's so easy for your life and my life to be problem-centered. Is that true? As you sit here this morning, right, we face a problem of health, of life and death. It's so easy. Every Tuesday when you staff meeting, we get feedback of how the messages went from children's church to basic our youth group to our services, to our sermons, and then we hear whatever feedback there is, and usually there's a lot of feedback, all the way from uh, the songs were not good, the service leader could have done this better, the announcements could have been done better, to the sermons could have been better. My goodness. By the time we listen to all that, right, then of course the food is never good enough. My whole task over the last 32 years in those staff meetings, and still will be till God takes me to glory, is how not to allow the pastoral ministry and team to degenerate into problem solvers. You follow? But to keep us God-centered. Because something can displace God as the center of our life. Is that your own life? Is that your own singleness? You're single, but you're problem-centered? You're married, but you're problem-centered? You got family, you're problem-centered? God didn't create you to be filled with the center of problems. So take note. And so, Moses does this, right? And I charge your judges at the time. Hear the cases between your brothers, right? And judge righteously between a man, his brother, or alien who is with him. Judge righteously between a brother and also an alien. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall not be intimidated by anyone. And if that case is too hard for you, the human judges, you shall bring them to me. And so God organized them in thousands, in hundreds, in fifties, and in tens. And so you get the first whiff. Don't forget, huh? these people have moved from slavery where they live under a human pharaoh to now living under God as their king. And so it runs something like that. It's organized into the thousands, into the hundreds, into the fifties, into the tens. And then the two hard, anybody falls in a two hard basket, see Moses. That sort of tells us that's how it is. Bring one. 88 discipleship groups. If your 88 DG leaders and co-leaders can solve your problems, help you with your burdens, we will try. But sometimes it comes up to us and we'll try as pastors. And sometimes we can't and you come up to me and I have to try my best. And that's why we age. And that's why we grow wrinkles. Because it's burdensome. It is. And that's not a complaint. It's right here in Scripture. From the first whiff of what it means to the 12 tribes, to keep them as the one people of God was not easy. And so how God ruled His people? There's hierarchy of leaders of the thousands, of the hundreds, of the fifties, and the tens. Yet there's equality. You judge justly between your own brothers and the alien. The alien has some rights. Give him the rights when it becomes a court case. Give him his legal rights. 
and it's so that everyone is justly blessed, equally blessed as God's people as we march into the Promised Land. This will bring glory to God. This is how we love each other, and this is how we treat each other. And all three things must be there. The hierarchy, the first among equals, the equality of justice, so that all will be equally blessed. Equal in God, equal in sin, equal in salvation, and equal in salvation blessings. Then he moves on to the blessing of the land. So if God has fulfilled, the logic of, of Moses' sermon is quite simple. If God fulfilled an impossible promise to bring about a great nation from a barren couple, to bring life when there is death, you think God cannot give you land? Which is harder to give to you? Descendants or land? Trick question, huh? Try answering. Okay? So we started with dialogue this morning. Might as well carry on with dialogue. Which one is harder for God to do? To give you life, descendants, or to give you land? All those who think give you children is harder. Hands up. All those who are not thinking, hands down. The first one is harder, but both are impossible. Because take land. Any of, anybody has taken land from anyone? Have you taken land? For you to take land, somebody must give land. Whoever has given you land, apart from your parents who can't take it with you, with them, you get the land. Any other land you want, you have to fight for it. The only problem with this land is that it's full of enemies that are bigger and faster and better equipped than them. More seasoned in warfare, higher budgets for defence than all of Israel put together. That's the problem. And so, the Lord God has set the land before you. Go up and take possession of the land. Do not fear or be dismayed. Then all of you came near and said, Let us send men before us, that may explore the land and bring us word again, so that we may go up and the cities into which we shall come. The thing seemed good to me. So initially, in in regards to ruling over the people, this, he suggested something, they said it was good. Now they suggested something and Moses said it's good. So it's good. And so they sent out the spies and the word says, it's a good land that the Lord is giving us. And so we find here this living relationship between God and his people. And the report of the spies who were sent is basically this. God's promises stand. The enemies are real. This land is not free. This land is occupied. You have to dispossess the people there before you can possess and enter and possess that land. The command is to go. They spy out the land. It is a good land. And you would expect from this report a good report, a good report from the good God and His promises, a good response from Israel. A good God with the good promises to redeem them and to bless them. A good report from the spies. It is confirmed a good land meets with a bad response from Israel. When Israel forgets, yet you would not go up but rebel against the command of the Lord. And you murmured in your tents because the Lord hated us. He brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. 
And look at the hearts, the character of rebellion. The heart and character of rebellion, not just of them, but for all of us. You rebel. And the language there, this is your very character. You have never learned to trust God. You have always distrusted God. And you show this by murmuring in your tents. So what you say under your breath, what you say in the privacy of your car, what you say in the privacy of your room, is not private conversation. What you say in your heart is heard by God. Please take note of that. This is not a God who is dumb and deaf, made by human hands. This is the God who made us in His image and gave us the five senses. And what you and I do with our five senses, whether we live in trust of Him and worship of Him, to love Him and love neighbour, or whether we live in distrust and disobedience to Him, God knows. And they dare to say God hates us. And they dare to say that God is out to destroy us. And so the heart of rebellion, the principles to take away, they turn God's good will into God's bad intentions for them. They turn, so the seriousness of turning, the big English word is, I've been using it all these years, is they turn benevolence, God's goodwill, into malevolence. The saddest thing we as children can say to our parents is you do not know how to love me or you don't love me. You just don't understand me. You always have that. Parents are not perfect, but a normal parent under God is sincere. Sometimes sincerely wrong, sometimes sincerely right. But the worst thing you could say to a parent who loves you is you, have, you are malevolent. You have evil intentions for me. That will bring a tear to their eye and brokenness to their hearts. So beware of forgetfulness of God. You forgot God, it will finally lead to unfaithfulness. And the forgetting of God, do you remember him now? Yes, you're smack in the middle of listening. You just had Brother Roland collapse before you. You're not going to forget this service. Will you remember him by this evening? And remember the passage we just read today. And remember the sermon that was just preached today that expounded God's word to you. That's the thing. If you get used to forgetting the reading of God's word that you just read this morning, by evening you forgot. You forget the sermon that you heard this today. By Monday when you walk into the workplace, into your school places, you forget the messages. You get used to that. You get hardened to forgetfulness. That will lead you to sinfulness. It's a sure formula. If you're not going to remember him today, you're not going to remember him tomorrow. And so, the heart of rebellion continues for God's people. And how does it continue for God's people? It says this, Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt. The people are greater and taller than us. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, you've seen the sons of the Anakim. And then I said to you, do not be in dread or afraid of them. And so they turn from their own distrust and try to blame it on the spy. The spy's report is, yes, there are people in the land. And see the size of the people and see the strength of their fortresses. You put one plus two together, they are unconquerable. This thing called land, we don't believe that you can do it, O oh God. 
And so we are not going up. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your very eyes in the wilderness. The Lord carried you as a man carries the sun all the way, all that way. You went until you came to this place. And so what does God remind them of? God reminds them of this. You turn God's goodwill into bad will. The seriousness of accusing God from benevolence to malevolence. You forgot God is a loving Father to you. He carried you. He carried you. Our brother Roland fell. Was there anyone amongst us who was strong enough to carry him? Not that we should, because we have to wait for the emergency services. But let's say you are out there, cycling, running, walking. You're all by yourself. I've told this story many times. I grew up. My family had 12 kids. My friend's family had 10, um, 10 kids. Another family had 15 kids, all from one mother. The previous generation had nothing to do before television. So my friend tells me, we grew up in the same town, right? His father was a prankster, always played prank. When we went to his house when we were young, primary school, secondary school, his father would always play with us, different things, a joker. And then I had not met my friend for years. He finally came with his family here, all 10 children, celebrated Christmas or Chinese New Year, had a banquet and meal. And all of a sudden, the father slumped. And he said, Dad, wrong time to play tricks. Huh? He was having a heart attack. No one knew how to revive him. They were all his sons and daughters. He died on the spot. God carried you as he carried the son. Where did this language and this thought of father and son begin? When God told Moses to tell Pharaoh, the most powerful king of that time, you should let my son go so that you let him go from idolatry so that he can come and worship the true and living God. But you refuse to let him go, so I, God, will kill your firstborn son. Israel is God's firstborn. How on earth did she forget that? So recently as seeing him part the Red Seas and literally carried them on eagles' wings, the same water drowned the Egyptian army. The same waters was parted to save Israel. They were eyewitnesses and beneficiary of God's love and God's action and achievement. How could you be a witness and a beneficiary of this and be so forgetful of God in our lives? And so the pain of rebellion against God is that God's endless love as Father is met with Israel's endless grumbling, endless fears, endless distrust, and endless disobedience. There will be all one more thing to grumble about against God. There will be one more fear to take you out of faith. There will be one more thing that you cannot trust God for. We could trust Him now for, for children, but we cannot trust Him for the land. We can't. And you know what? And the Lord heard these words, the consequences of forgetting God. Not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land I swore to give to your fathers. Please do not allow the world to tell you there is no such thing called sin. And the furthest thing, there's no consequences for sin against God. There are consequences. The consequences is you will live forever in hell without God. So this is our addiction 
to idolatrous self-redemption. Mankind and machine always trying to make a utopian and paradisical world without God. And how do we do it? We blame God, we ignore God, we become atheists, we become secular, we blame others, we grumble, we fear our circumstances, we rationalize our distrust, we wriggle our way out of disobedience. And they rationalize their distrust, say, we didn't want to go into this land because our children may be taken as slaves. Always good to plead your children. And guess what? God said, far from your children being taken over, your children would inherit the land. You who gave me the fake reason, all the fake reasons why you should fear men more than fear God, you will not enter. Your children will enter. I will give them a second chance because I'm God of unchanging love and promises. The chapter ends with, they repent and they go and they fight and they are totally wiped out. And the lesson here is beware. Fake repentance. And how do you know your repentance is fake or fickle? Is shallow? When you don't see the seriousness of your sin against God. When you don't see your seriousness of your sin against God's leader, Moses. When you don't see the seriousness of you bringing court cases against each other. When you don't see the seriousness of a sin and you learn to rationalize it. For them, they don't see the seriousness of distrust and disobedience to God. Distrusting God and disobeying God is the hugest thing, wrong thing you can do. Please do not normalize it and get used to it. The consequences of forgetting God as we come to the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 10. Now, these things took place as examples for them. Oh, sorry, I read wrongly. Are you still with me? These things took place to them as examples for us. That's why you must read Scripture as a whole. And here in ARPC, we give you what we call biblical theology. The whole story of redemption, what happened to them, we pray and exhort you and plead with all our hearts that it will not happen to you. The Corinthian Christians were the most gifted of Christians, as it were. But they were the most problematic Christians. They fought over their leaders in chapters 1 to 4. They fought against each other and brought each other to court cases. They indulged in sexual immorality and said, what we do in the body doesn't affect our eternity. They abused the Lord's Supper. They abused so many things. They held out that one gift was the gift of tongues. When, God, when Paul told them, it's not your gift that matter, it's love. Whether you use your gifts in love. And so, a totally problem-centered church. And Paul writes to them, Replace that centre with Christ. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We do not indulge. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in a day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by destroyer. We're going to come back to this verse again and again over the next few chapters of Deuteronomy. 
Therefore, lest anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. And with the temptation, He will provide the way of escape that you will not be able to endure. A lot to unpack. But because of time, what has happened today, the takeaway lessons must be as real to us. To them, for us. To them, for us. We must never say to God, the only way out of my trying circumstance when faith came under test was not to trust in you. Because if you were in my position, I would have also not trusted in you. You can never say to God that the only way out of my circumstance was to sin. God is not a God that He orchestrates the circumstances of your life only to make you sin. So tomorrow when you walk off to your school places, tomorrow when you walk off to your workplaces, in your singleness, in your married life, in your family life, in our church life, you will face tension in relationships. You will face tempting circumstances. You must never say to God, the only way out was to hate the other person. The only way out was to succumb and to give in and to take things into my own hands. God never orchestrates things so that it leads us to distrust Him. So I remember when we were working in Straits Times, it was a time in which articles could go on for pages. And I so happened to be the sub-editor in terms of this serial of, of articles written by an in-house writer. And she was a prima donna writer. Very careful with every word, every full stop, every comma. Which means if I move a full stop or move a comma, she will come and sit beside me and ask why. Her articles ran in thousands of words. And she kept making changes to the copy. And the deadline had to be reached because by 1 a.m. in the morning, we had to print the papers and let it go. And then the lorries were carried all throughout Singapore. We were really under so much pressure. She had made change after change after change. And I was really tired. And for the first time in my work life, I think, I said to her, you are such a difficult person to, love, uh, to work with. Right? I don't know whether I use the word pain in some part of the anatomy. Then I was convicted. And I went to the washroom. And I went to the cubicle and sat there and prayed and repented before God. Everybody knows I'm a Christian. Lots of people in the office know I'm going to go to Bible college and become a pastor because I told lots of people. And I just blew it. When you're tired, when you're weary, when the deadline is looming, you sometimes think you just have to take things into your own hands. And so I did. She was known in the office as being difficult, but I didn't have to say it. You follow? I could have gone and prayed for extra perseverance. One more change, one more time. To them, for us, faith in God does not mean we have less fears, we have less enemies, but we can learn to fear less 
by remembering God, and I miss the word, trusting God. And that's so important for us as Christians. We are not telling you that because you believe in Jesus as your final Saviour and Lord, that you will have less enemies out there, less opposition out there, less hurdles out there, less road hums and roadblocks. But you can learn to fear them less as your faith in Jesus grows from everything He throws into your life. So to them for us, remember the past faithfulness of God for present obedience, and we wanted to add for future hope. Remember the past obedience for present obedience, past faithfulness of God, for present obedience and for future hope. One of my relatives just lost her husband to illness at 40 years old. And this morning she wrote this message to us. And he just said, and he just said, and I replied to her, and he just said, Now that everything is sorted, it's time to move on with life without my husband June and with my daughter and step into a new season under God, trusting God for everything. We do not necessarily have less fears like we can learn to fear I less. Siri, not talking to you. And so, I don't think we need any more reminders than today that all of life is in God's hands. May you not be deprived of entering the true promised land that Jesus has given to us. Stand, we're going to pray together and sing a song that we learn. He is faithful. In our fallen world and our sinful hearts, we confess we are so prone to grumbling so prone to fears of men, of circumstances, so prone to the forgetting of you, though we have experienced your goodness and your good heart and your good purposes for us. We thank you that you alone remember that in and through Israel we know that we are forgetful people. And in our forgetfulness, we sin, we rebel, we grumble, we rationalize, we blame others. We embark on idolatrous self-redemption and self-rescue. Stop us in those tracks. Lead us to find salvation and to be blessed by faith in you. And we pray that all that you've taught us today by what happened to our brother Roland, now finally the reading and listening to your word and your voice. We will march forth in simple faith and wholehearted obedience as Caleb did. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.